Welcome to Celebration Church Online. We are so glad that you've joined us. We want you to share this broadcast with as many people as you can. We believe that it will bless and encourage us all in this season. Remember to continue reaching out to your loved ones. Stay connected with each other, especially with your cell family. The Bible gives us a pattern to look out for one another. Let's speak His word and His strength will carry us through. Continue checking our social media platforms for updates on Facebook and WhatsApp. We encourage you to share this content with all your friends and family. Well, we've just come out of an amazing conference, His Church. And we could go for weeks and weeks, even months, on the topic of His Church. But we need to shift not just from being His Church, but to what does that mean? How do we portray the Church of Jesus Christ? What are the key elements of being the church? Well, uh, we're going to be getting into some of those things. One of the messages in a, uh, next week will be about being salt and being light. But before you can be salt and light, you have to understand uh, the life-changing power of the Word of God. So, Father, I'm asking you today to help us as I bring this message to touch the hearts and lives of people and help us to understand your life-changing power that you give us through the Word of God. See, you have to understand something. That the Word of God has supernatural power in and of itself to change people's lives. I, I, I almost titled this message, Finding Hope in a Hopeless World. But I, I feel like that's negative and that the life-changing power of the Word of God is just that much more powerful. You see, there's a lot of people that are confused about what the Bible teaches. Uh, let me give you a few humorous answers to Bible quiz that was given to some middle school students. Uh, their answer was Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. Or uh, one, said, one little boy said, Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Seventh Commandment is, thou shalt not admit adultery. Uh, I think there's a big difference between commit and admit. Okay, Joshua fought the Battle of Jeritol. Now, that was an American thing, but Geritol was a, a kind of a, a laxative. Uh, the followers of Jesus Christ were called the 12 decibels. David killed Galahad, who was one of the Finkelsteins. Who knows where we get these answers from? A Christian should have only one wife. This is called monotony. Uh, the Apostle Paul only preached for three weeks in the city of Thessalonica before he was run out of town by an angry mob. I want you to understand something. Three weeks is all he ever preached in Thessalonica. But he left behind a group of believers and they formed a church. He wrote them a letter to encourage them in the face of the opposition that they were facing. In 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, 13 through 16, he says this, And we also thank God continually because... When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins 
to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Well, that's a pretty tough, powerful scripture. And uh, I'm going to break it down for you in just a minute. But, you know, there was a journalist who uh, was from New York City, and his name was A.J. Jacobs. And he subjects himself to real-life experiments and then writes about, about it in humorous books. For instance, he spent a year reading uh, every volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica and then wrote a book about it. In 2007, he wrote a book entitled The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. Well, there's an obscure rule in Leviticus 19 about Jewish men not cutting the corners of their beards. And so Jacobs wasn't sure what were the corners of the beards, so he just didn't shave at all for a whole year. Now, Jacobs isn't a Christian. His parents are Jewish, but he claims to be an agnostic. And for this project, he bought a Bible, and he read it in four weeks and wrote down every rule that he could find, and he tried to obey every rule. He had a list of about 700 rules, in fact, over 700. But the vast majority of these rules were the kosher rules that were found in the book of Leviticus. So he stopped wearing clothes of mixed fabrics. He played a ten-string harp. He blew a shofar and, uh, at the first of every month. He refused to shake hands with women because they might be ceremonially unclean. And uh, so after a while, a man met him in Central Park in America and asked him what he was doing. And he explained to the man that there was only one rule that he hadn't obeyed. And Jacobs pulled some pebbles out of his pocket. He said he hadn't had the opportunity to stone, stone someone who had committed adultery. Well, the man admitted that he'd committed that great sin. So Jacob said, great. But before he could throw the pebbles at the man, he grabbed the pebbles from his hand and threw them at Jacobs. Jacob picked them up quickly and threw them back and said, an eye for an eye. So you have to understand something. Although this is humorous and he wrote like this, uh, and, uh, and, and that he conducted this experiment to write a funny book, and he accomplished that goal. Here's what he said. He said, in reading the Bible, although it didn't cause him to believe in God, it did change him from being an agnostic to what he called a reverent agnostic. He reported that he found something very powerful in sacred rituals. For instance, he was a workaholic, but for a year he had to refrain from any work on the Sabbath. He reported that it remarkably lowered his stress level. Of course, his experiment was flawed from the very beginning because he didn't understand that the Bible isn't a book of rules. It's a love letter from God to his people. You see, if you only read the Bible looking for rules, then what you'll find is rules. But if you read the Bible searching for God, you'll find him also. See, Jacob's missed the whole point of the Bible, because the scripture says in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, the 14th verse, he says, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. But Jacob's experiment reveals what many modern people think about the Bible. They think of it as an ancient, archaic book of impossible to keep rules. But for those of us who know God and love God, we know that this book is more up-to-date, more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper. Zimbabwe, and the whole world for that matter, is losing its moral compass because many of our leaders no longer consider the Bible to be a reliable guide for truth. 
in 2005 in the straight state Supreme Court of the state I grew up in in Colorado, they overturned the death penalty on a convicted murderer because the jurors consulted a Bible while deliberating over the sentence. The court ruled this. It says that the Bible constituted an improper outside influence. One of America's early statesmen, a man named Daniel Webster, he wrote this. He says, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell us or can tell how suddenly a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all of our glory in a profound obscurity. That's a powerful statement. So this morning, I want you and I to consider four truths about the Word of God. Number one, God's Word is communicated through ordinary people who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul referred to his preaching to people when he wrote this. He says uh, in 1 Thessalonians, we just read it. He says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. See, Paul had the audacity to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't a story stemming from his imagination, but it was actually the word of God. Now, as we're reading his words uh, 2,000 years later, we still consider it to be the Word of God. The thing that makes the Bible totally unique is that it is written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different people in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. These were ordinary people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Peter wrote this, he said in 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 21, he says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, some of our famous authors, ancient authors today for some of us, some of you never read these people, but Virgil or Homer, they never prefaced their writings with, Hear the word of the gods. Shakespeare or Milton never asserted their writings came straight from God. But in the Bible, you read the phrase, the Lord says, over 2,600 times. So when the Bible speaks, God speaks. It isn't merely the word of men, it's the word of God. Is the Bible unique? Well, consider how the Book of Mormon was written. One man, a man named Joseph Smith, claimed that an angel named Moroni led him to some golden plates inscribed with Egyptian hieroglyphics. And over a period of few months, Joseph Smith dictated the translation of these tablets, which no one else saw, and which he claims he gave back to that angel, Moroni. Now, not many non-Mormons know this, but do you know how Joseph Smith claimed he dictated the Book of Mormon? He didn't look at the tablets. Instead, he used something called a seer's stone, which psychics of that day used to find buried treasure. He put the chocolate-covered seer stone in his hat and then covered his face with his hat, and the stone showed him what to say. Now, I've read the Book of Mormon, and apparently that magic rock spoke King James uh, Version English. Because much of the Book of Mormon is just as many sections of the King James Bible. 
Let me ask you another question. How was the Quran written? Well, beginning in 610 AD, Muhammad was in a cave when an, the angel, supposedly the angel Gabriel appeared to him and dictated what he was to write. And that begins a series of revelations that Muhammad wrote down until his death. For instance, God told him to stop facing Jerusalem when he prayed and to face Mecca. Muslims claim that the Quran can only be read in Arabic. So if you really want to read it, you have to learn Arabic. See, as Christians, we don't ascribe to any kind of holy dictation theory. God spoke through all different kinds of ordinary people. Moses was a prince, a prince of Egypt, riding in a wilderness. Daniel was a prime minister riding from a palace in Iraq. Paul was a prisoner riding from behind bars. Amos was a farmer. Peter was a fisherman. Solomon was a king. Luke was a doctor. And Matthew worked for the tax department. God spoke in different ways to different people. He thundered his message to Moses from Mount Sinai. To Jeremiah, the Bible says God's word was like a, a fire in his bones. To Elijah, God spoke in a still, small voice. God spoke to Daniel through dreams and through visions. The Bible is written for all people. It's the world's best-selling book. The full Bible has been translated into nearly 700 languages now. Portions of the New Testament have been translated into 2,798 languages. Now, there are currently 3,969 languages still with no scripture. But the fact that the Bible was written down by just ordinary people, these ordinary people, convinces me that it truly is the Word of God. You know, if I picked 40 people in Zimbabwe and separated them and then told them to write about a controversial subject, do you think that there would be complete agreement? Would those 40 documents have a common theme and subject? <laughs> I know Zimbabweans. You get three Zimbabweans in a room and you get five different interpretations of something. I seriously doubt it. And these 40 people would be living right now in the same time, speaking the same language and living in the same culture, but they couldn't agree. But these 40 men who wrote the Bible lived in different times, different cultures, wrote in different languages, and yet the Bible has a common theme. The Bible has a literary system that can only be described as miraculous. God's word is communicated through ordinary people who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that some people claim that the Bible is just a collection of old myths and fables and, story and stories. Others call it the good book. But they don't consider it to be God's book. But for those of us who have studied it for decades, we believe that it is the Word of God. Secondly, I want to say this. The Word of God is at work in us. Paul went on in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, the 13th verse, and he said this, the Word of God, which is at work in you who believe. You see, when you're thirsty, you can drink water, and the water starts to work in you and relieve your thirst. When you are hungry, you can eat food, and that food works in you to give you nourishment and strength. When you breathe in, oxygen goes into your lungs, and it works to give you energy. It gives you life. But without water, without food, or without oxygen, we would all soon die. See, the Word of God is even more important. 
Jesus told Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, the Bible's like living water that quenches your spiritual thirst. It's like bread that nourishes your soul. It's like life-giving oxygen that God inspires you with. The Bible says in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, nothing in all creation is hidden from God or from God's sight. Everything uncovered is laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. That's what the Bible says. Since this is God's word, we should be careful not to criticize its author. You know, there was a self-appointed art critic, and he was visiting an art museum. He's making snide remarks about most of the paintings. She approached one frame and said to the guide, Ooh, I find this image to be shallow, crude, and lacking in beauty. What is it? The guy said, Madam, that's a mirror. The Bible not only gives us a picture of God, but the Bible says it's a mirror to you and I. It gives us a picture of ourselves. Years ago, I used to teach that we should all memorize the scriptures. We had a motto. God's word in heart and hand. You see, Jesus said that the Devil, Satan, wants to steal the word from your heart like birds swooping down to steal seed on a hard pathway. Here's the simple way of remembering how to handle the word of God. As you hold your palm upward, your thumb can represent hearing God's word. If you, your only interaction is to hear the word of God, it'll be hard to retain it, to grasp it. It would be like trying to hold a book with just using your thumb or your finger. The forefinger stands for reading the Bible for yourself. When you do that, you have a better grasp of the Word, but it's still easily removed. The next finger stands for studying the Word of God. And when you study the Word, that means you read a passage or you read a verse over and over and you ask yourself, well, now what does this mean? Your next standard finger stands for memorizing, memorizing God's Word. How much of God's Word have you memorized? David said in Psalm 119, verse 11, he says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, when you hear, read, study, and memorize God's word, you have a good grasp of it. But that last finger stands for meditating on God's word. That's when you ponder over it, and you ponder over it, and you regurgitate it, you think about it, you uh, just keep bringing it back up and, and, and thinking about it. And what is God saying? I can hear, I can read, I can study, I can memorize, and I can meditate on the Bible. But if I only hold my Bible with my fingertips, it can be still snatched away from me. It's only when I move it to the palm of my hand that I have a firm grip on it. And your palm represents applying or making application of God's Word. That's when you ask yourself, what is God telling me to do? in response to his word. You see, to the extent that it's God's word at work in your life is how much God 
is working in and through you. What extent is God's word at work in your life? Number three, the word of God produces opposition. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, he says, You suffered from your own countrymen, the same thing which the churches suffered from the Jews. See, Paul, Paul himself faced hostility and opposition in every city where he preached. Paul referred to the Jewish troublemakers who had driven him out of town and were now opposing the believers in Thessalonica. He writes that the Jewish people killed God's prophets and even killed the Son of God. You know, he almost sounds anti-Semitic. But remember, Paul's a Jew. And he had been one of those opposed who had opposed the Christians. In fact, Paul approved of the death of Stephen and even cared for the coats of the men who stoned him to death. When you believe the word of God, you're going to face opposition. Why? Well, let me give you three reasons. First of all, the gospel exposes the ugliness of sin. You see, the Bible teaches us that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We are all sinners. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You know, if you open your newspapers today, it doesn't matter where you're at in the world, or turn on the news or watch some video blog. What do you read? What do you see? Violence, wickedness, cover-ups, crimes. The problem in Zimbabwe, and around the world, isn't corruption. It's the problem of sin. There are social evolutionists who claim humanity is getting better and better. Education and technology are going to move us to a place of human utopia and goodness. Well, it's not happening. We're seeing more and more hideous and horrific acts carried out by people every single day. I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. The bad news is that the wages of sin is death. But the good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can find that in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Secondly, the gospel forgives undeserving sinners. The gospel announces that there is salvation for anyone who comes to Christ, regardless of how bad they've been. It's a pastor friend of mine, and he was talking to a prison social worker once. The social worker wasn't a believer and had a problem with Christian groups coming into the prison and preaching salvation. The social worker said this. He said, do you mean to tell me that a convicted murderer or rapist here in the prison who comes to Christ can be forgiven and be just as accepted by God as someone like me who has lived a good and honest life? Of course, the pastor's reply was yes. And the prison worker said that I don't want anything to do with God, with the Bible, or the church. You see, I call that the scandal of grace. God says if any man will turn from his sinful way, repent, he'll accept him and forgive him. The third thing is the gospel predicts punishment for sin. Another reason that people don't like the Bible is that it is a clear message. And its clear message is that God will one day punish sin. Now that's not popular. Paul wrote this about the Jews who were opposing the gospel. 
He said in 1 Thessalonians 2.16, In this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Whew. A few days before Jesus was crucified, he wept over Jerusalem and he predicted its destruction because they'd not recognized him as God, as their Lord in the flesh. In 70 AD, the Romans attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the city. Paul wrote these words that I've just read to you now just a few years before that had happened. But even when he wrote this letter, the Jews were already in war against the Romans. Paul saw this as God's judgment on the city for rejecting Jesus and opposing the gospel. See, most people don't like to hear about hell, which is God's ultimate punishment for sin. You know, I've been praying for God to send Zimbabwe, a spiritual awakening, a spiritual revival. Not only Zimbabwe, but all of Africa and the whole world. And I've studied previous spiritual awakenings and nations where they occurred. I want to talk about one, America's first great spiritual awakening. It happened in 1730 when there was just 13 British colonies. One of the pastors that God had used spiritually to revive the people in New England was a man named Jonathan Edwards. He preached a famous message. It was called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. We don't make titles like that anymore, do we? Jonathan Edwards wasn't some backwoods bumpkin. He was a highly educated theologian. He had graduated from Yale. and He'd married the daughter of the first president of Yale. Yale, Harvard, and Princeton, those prestigious universities today that have become so liberal that they've lost their minds, were all originally founded to train preachers. Eventually, Jonathan Edwards became the president of Princeton until he died at the age of 55. Maybe we need to hear sermons like his if we're going to see a spiritual awakening. Let me give you an ex I want to read an excerpt from his message. He said this. He said, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again are in the hands of an angry God. It is not but God's hand of mercy that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you sat here in the house of God. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Now, Jonathan Edwards was not a hellfire and brimstone preacher yelling and pounding the pulpit. In fact, he was a diminutive man, and he read his messages in a very high-pitched voice with no emotion. And yet there are reports of people in the congregation weeping and holding on to the pews and the posts of the church building to keep from falling into hell. He proclaimed God's punishment for sin, but he also offered God's invitation for salvation.
Listen to how he concluded his message. He concluded with these words. He says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming that were lately in the same miserable condition that you are in and are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. Let me conclude. The word of God has supernatural power to change lives. In 1949, the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention appointed a Texas pastor by the name of Dr. Julius Hickerson, and he was supposed to serve as a missionary in Columbia. His specific task was to build a seminary in Cali to train Colombian pastors to share the gospel and to start churches. However, before he could ever build the seminary, Dr. Hickerson died in a small plane crash over the remote jungles of the mountains between Colombia and Venezuela. Two years later, a delegation of natives from the interior came to the Baptist mission. These natives announced to the missionaries that they were followers of Jesus Christ. The missionaries were surprised because they'd never sent missionaries into those remote areas. They asked the natives, how they had heard the gospel. And the new believers explained that they had found a book that came from heaven. It was a leather-bound New Testament written in Spanish with the name Julius Hickerson engraved on the cover. Only one member of the tribe could read Spanish, so he read it and uh, began to read it in several villages, in fact. And everyone in these villages became Christians. And then several churches had been started using nothing more than the model in this book from heaven. Julius Hickerson died in a plane crash before he could build the seminary. But his Bible survived. These Colombian natives read it and gave their lives to Christ. That's the life-changing power of the Word of God. I believe it's important for you and I to understand that power in our own lives. It's time for us to turn back to the Word of God. It's time for us to read it, to hear it, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate upon it, and then to ask God, what do you want to do? How should I live this Word in my life? I know there are many people under the sound of my voice and you're hearing this gospel. It's good news. And it is good news for those who receive it. But it is bad news for those who don't. If you're listening and you feel like, man, God is speaking to me and I, I want to respond. And whether you're a backslidden Christian or you're a non-believer altogether, you can ask Jesus into your heart. You can repent and turn. He will save you. Maybe you need help in doing so. Maybe you'd like someone to pray with you. Well, on our screen right now, there are some phone numbers. 
there are some people that are willing and they're waiting for you to reach out to them. If you reach out to them, they're able to either pray with you or lead you to somebody that can pray with you. You can talk to a pastor. You can speak to a counselor. You can speak to someone well-versed in the Bible. But I can tell you this. If you'll just take your Bible and begin to ask God. The Bible says if you'll seek the truth, you'll find it. I'm encouraging you today. Read the Bible. Seek God with all your heart. Repent from your sinful ways. He is the life. He is the light. He is the truth. He is the way. And your relationship with Jesus is what matters. And nothing else. Let me pray. Father, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice. I'm asking, Lord, that these words that I've spoken today would penetrate our wicked hearts, all of us. And that, Father, we would live holy lives for you. That we would turn around. That we would not take you for granted. We would not take your word for granted. And that, Father, this oxygen, this water, this food, this bread of life would fill us. That we would be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us online. We hope and trust that you've been blessed by this service. Stay connected with us through our social media platforms, Facebook and WhatsApp. As we go, stay safe, stay blessed, stay connected.